The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. I don't particularly have a, have, a, have a disagreement. If Stonewall wants to campaign on trans rights, it seems to me what Stonewall wants to campaign on it. I have an issue with the way in which it chose to campaign. But if you're going to build a strategy around trans rights, you have to find a way of engaging with some of the difficulties that it poses. Hello and welcome to Marshall Matters with me, Winston Marshall, at The Spectator in London. Today I am joined by Perrier award-winning comedian, author of the book The Power of Difference, writer, broadcaster, a co-founder of the gay rights charity Stonewall, and also a co-founder of the new company Diversity by Design, Simon Fanshawe. Simon, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me well, today. it's a real pleasure. So, well, I have to say we don't know that. We'll see. We'll see. You might dislike They'll it. They'll be the judge of that. <laughs> Quite. Um, I, I'm sure it will be a pleasure for me. And it's been a pleasure actually looking into your astounding life and um, the many things you, you've done and been up to and, and are, are still up to. And I hope we can dig into that. Um, I'd love to ask, we'll start with um, the formation of Stonewall. So you're one of the six co-founders. How did that come about? Well, <laughs> It's always funny having one's introduction read because the truth of it is I've never been able to hold down a job. I mean, that's the truth. In fact, I've never had a job. So, you know, it's a kind of desperate uh, catalogue of failure, really. In 1987, 89, there was a piece of legislation which was originally dreamt up by somebody, a couple of some people on the, on the sort of further right of the Conservative Party. So remember, this is Thatcher's Conservative government, Margaret Thatcher's Conservative government. But it was adopted by the government and it was part of a local government bill. It was known as Section 28. It actually started Section 22, I think, and then it became like a bingo call. It sort of changed its name, 22, 24, 25, you know, all the eights. And then what it was, it was the prohibition... Of, uh, of, of promoting homosexuality as a pretended family relationship. It was a very bizarre kind of... Um, pretended. Pretended family oh, relationship. Pretend. The context was the left authorities, uh, what were known as the loony left authorities by the sun and such like, in particularly London, but not exclusively. So we're talking Brent, Haringey, you know, uh, Hackney and so on and so forth. And, they, and the GLC. And they had become great advocates of kind of lesbian and gay rights. And they had gone out of their way to help, you know, kids at school and kids in college and so on and so forth, people growing up to understand that, you know, there was a, all sorts of possibilities in life. And they hadn't necessarily done it well, but they'd done it. And, and what Section 28 was, I think, was a really good way of bashing the so-called loony left authorities. The thing about us gays is we're terribly useful as a political weapon. Because if you want to look fabulous and liberal, you know, you just have to have gay friends, you know, and all your kids have gay godparents, you know, and if you don't have a lesbian auntie, no one talks to you, you know, in the playgrounds of North London and so on. 
So we're very useful. And if you're on the right, we're also very useful because we're a really good dog whistle. So you blow the dog whistle. People are teaching your children to be gay, you know, and all that. So we're very useful on both sides of the political spectrum. And we are used a lot on both sides of the political spectrum. So I think if you look at that period, what Section 28 was really about, as I say, was a weapon to beat the loony left authorities. There were councillors in Brighton, where I live, going around saying they're not painting your front door on the council house because they're funding this gay pride you know we took on the challenge though because clearly what it was the effect of it was to stigmatize us now what you have to remember too think back to the 80s or look at the history of the 80s if you're too young to have lived through it so the first person who died of AIDS in Britain died in 81 or 82. The Terence Higgins Trust was formed during a few years later so you've got the 80s a bookended by the AIDS crisis and then by Section 28. So it was a decade in which we were fighting the stigma and the stigmatisation of our lives. And so it was difficult time. Not to say we didn't party and dance. I mean, you know, people in South Africa, even there, you know, they slapped Wellington boots and drank some booze. So you party while you're having a bad time. But it was a really, really pressured, politically pressured time. And after the, the sort of great... Uh, flowering of things once we were legal or once we were not illegal in 1967. See, all we've got is visibility. So once that, that's why coming out is kind of important. So once you're out, then you're in the street and you can't be arrested just for being in the street. So what happened was everything flowered. I mean, there were gay sailing clubs, yachting clubs, political clubs, all that sort of stuff. So the 80s came and that stuff solidified into, firstly, work around AIDS and buddying and pressuring and getting health services to take it seriously. And then at the end of the 80s, Section 28 came, those networks were there and they sprung into action. But what was interesting was that we took it on, not as a subject about gays, but we took it on as a free speech issue. Mm. So we said, if you stigmatise, if you prohibit homosexuality and talking about homosexuality in schools, what you will do is you will empty the libraries. You will deprive kids of the full panoply of you know, culture and arts and so on and so forth. And actually, while we lost the battle, because it went on to the statute book, what we realised was that whatever people think about homosexuality in Britain, they still want people to be treated fairly. And that understanding was really important. And so Stonewall came out of that with the simple slogan, which was, we want equality under the law. Mm -hmm. So that was how it started, with a very, very simple message. And it is quite interesting that all the advances around lesbian and gay rights have been made in Britain by not talking about homosexuality. In other words, if you ask people whether they've got a view about whether it's right or wrong... Actually, some people will just go, it's wrong. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, some of those same people will also acknowledge that you don't want to stigmatise people under the law as a group. So you can win them over to that position. And that was really important understanding that I certainly took away from those years in Stonewall. Mm -hmm. And then so in the years after that, and by the way, there are some things that are immediately coming to mind about how it's not necessarily homosexuality, but the transgender issue that sort of replaced that. But maybe we'll, we'll come to that. But okay. before that, um, in the years after that, so 
through the 90s, Stonewall continued to do great things, uh, extending adoption and IVF rights and, and uh, civil partnership. I guess it would culminated in the civil partnership. It was that 2004, and, and then after t- 2004. Well, what, when did you leave Stonewall? Was it? Well, I was on the board until I can't remember, but probably something like about 94 or 95. So we started in 89 uh-huh. and I was probably on the board for six years or something like that. You know, uh-huh. it's a standard term. And then, you know, you pass it on to other people because that's what you do. You know, you give it to right. them and say, you kind of crack on with it and build it. And what happened up to 97, which was the Labour government, was that we constantly fought the age of consent battle and we constantly lost so I have a very, you know, a, a very Maoist slogan for that, which is, you know, every defeat was a victory. And the reason I say that was that every time we were defeated in Parliament around the equal age of consent, we won public support for the notion of equality. So we continued to build this public support. So when Labour came in committed to equal rights for lesbians and gays, notwithstanding some nervousness about that, we were able to persuade them that actually this is a pretty popular stance. Mm. Actually, pretty much everybody's got a a gay friend or a nephew or a son or a child of themselves. And actually, pretty much everybody doesn't think that it's okay to treat gays differently from themselves. What was the age of consent? Well, it was, well, it's interesting. Was it lowered or raised in the Victorian era? The answer was it was lowered. So what, we, what happened was that then it got raised and then eventually it was illegal. And then it was 21 in 1967. So when, when homosexuality was decriminalised, it was decriminalised on condition of both men, because women weren't included in the legislation at all, Men were both adult consenting. They were over 21 and they were in private. And hotel rooms, for instance, were regarded as not private. And, and heterosexual relations, what was the 16. Ah, oh, I see. So, and what year did that... Well, it came down... It, there was a compromise at 18 and then it finally came to 16 uh, sometime after 97. can't remember exactly when. So uh, you were still... Very, thinking very favourably of Stonewall through that period and would, was still supporting yeah, the organisation. Well, what was important about it was, as I say, was building these big, these big broad alliances of public opinion. So if you think, for instance, about the question, should gay people be parents? So that's a question that some, particularly on the sort of religious right, would ask. You know, oh, gay people should not be parents, you know. Well, OK, but there's a more interesting question which is, as a society, how do we make sure that children are brought up in the best possible circumstances and with the best possible conditions for success in their future life? Mm -hmm. Now, that's a much better question. Mm -hmm. And once you take the prejudice out of the question, then you have to say, well, actually, it turns out that some heterosexual parents are really good and some are terrible. And actually, some gay parents are good and some are terrible. Stonewall never said we have a right to be parents. They said we want an option to be parents. Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying to you is we always built that much wider constituency, I think, by asking bigger questions. Mm-hmm. So with the military, you know, there was always this thing about, you know, there was a ban on having gays in the armed forces. Mm-hmm. And it was quite funny. I'm, I come from an army background. My dad was uh, uh, an officer in the Argonne and Southern Highlanders. He was a lifelong soldier. So I'm quite used to these barking general, oh, hello, you know, those sorts of people, you know, and they just they literally bark at you. It's like being in a menagerie. <laughs> <laughs> and they've got wives that squawk. 
So you're the, you know, he's going, ruff, ruff, and she's going, meow, meow, and it's completely peculiar. And anyway, so I've grown up with these people. I am these people. And um, so I found myself in a studio once with a, with a barking general. And he, he would say, they always say, they always say homosexual which I always loved, very, very, very upper class. So he said, and I'd said, you know, it was about, about gays in the army. And he was saying, he said, well, uh, obviously, uh, we uh, can't have, you know, homosexuals in the army because uh, if one is in the Shah with a, a non-homosexual, a non-homosexual in the Shah, and as a homosexual in the Shah, the, uh, the, 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 the non-homosexual will, um, yeah, will be very, very nervous. And I remember saying to this gentleman, I said, to be perfectly honest, if a gay guy thinking you've got a cute ass makes you scared, then I don't think the army is the right job for you. <laughs> You're really in the wrong career, love, you know? So we thought, but the point about, <laughs> seriously, the point about, about gays in the army is that, you know, defending your country is a great sign of citizenship. I mean, it's, you know, some, you know, marriage and defending your country and those and voting. These are major moments of citizenship. And so the idea that you say, actually, what are the qualities we want in a soldier, a sailor or an air person? What are the mm. qualities we want to defend our country? That is a more interesting question mm. than whether they're gay. And absolutely, there's a rule in the armed forces that you don't have sex with other members of your troop and platoon and whatever they call them in the Air Force and the Navy. Mm -hmm. So the no sex rule, that's fine. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? So what is what do you want? What are the qualities you want in a person to defend the country? Mm -hmm. What relationship does that have to sexual orientation? And as we see now, when you've got both women on active service and also lesbians and gays in the army, actually, it's, it's no less an effective fighting force. So we were always raising those bigger questions. So my point is that what I learned from Stonewall was that you can make alliances with people without demanding total agreement. Mm -hmm. And actually, if you think of relationships, that's how that's how we work. That's how marriages work. It's how, that's how any relationship works. Any, any work relationship. relationship. How can you? Benjamin Franklin said, "Is everyone? If everyone's thinking the same, then no one's thinking. Like, you, how can you possibly act in the world if you're not collaborating with people who think slightly differently?" <laughs> Absolutely. And there is a style of politics, though, that demands the sort of total agreement. And it's not new. I mean, I remember being involved in Brighton, where I lived, which is. There was a big a tradition of the National Front in Brighton and the British National Party. John Tyndall, I think, lived there for a while, that kind of thing. He was one of the leaders. And there was a thing called the Anti-Nazi League, you may remember, you know, and there was fabulous concerts and Tom Robinson, Susie and the Banshees and all this stuff. And we always got to Hackney Marshes, didn't we? And, you know, you had to attach a balloon to your friends so you knew where they were. That's what I always remember. <laughs> anyway, so fantastic Anti-Nazi League. And I remember going to an Anti-Nazi League meeting in Brighton and... Uh, this was kind of some years in. And the SWP, which was the Socialist Workers' Party, which I think was called IS in those days, but International Socialists, but they demanded that the Anti-Nazi League took a position on Britain's membership of NATO. Hmm. And we were thinking, sorry? I thought we were here. To, the NF equals no fun. I thought we were fighting the fascists. I didn't think we were having a yeah. seminar on geopolitical relationships and Britain's role, you know, hmm. in common defence, etc., collective defence organisations. So I left. But that kind of politics is very prevalent. And I'm sure it's prevalent on the right. I've never been on the right, so I don't know. Mm -hmm. But it's very prevalent and always has been prevalent on the left is that there's a sense of total agreement on a platform. Otherwise, we will exclude you. 
And you see, I mean, it's an endless theme and it's very, very strong at the moment, but it's not new. Well, it's, there's, I mean, the, presumably the word for it is authoritarian because if you're, the concept of democracy is that you can... You it is authoritarian. I also think that it's got its roots in some sort of, some sense of belonging. I think that there's some idea that I think people, you know, we get a great deal of comfort out of tribalism. And it's one of the things, I wrote this book, The Power mm. of Difference, and it is there is an odd contradiction in there because you do have to share certain things to be able to get on with people in order to explore your differences. Uh-huh. So you do have to share something. And I think the problem is that people then, they get very comforted by the idea that actually we all agree about something. Uh-huh. That is a comfortable position to be in. And you see it in all sorts of places. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. You know, if you're in a group of blokes and you're sitting there and there's banter starts and people start making jokes that you think is sexist, it can be very difficult if you're not of a certain kind of personality to say, actually, hang on, chaps. Actually, I'm sorry, I've, I don't like that. I think that's offensive. Uh-huh. It's hard to step out of your group. Uh-huh. So understand how it happens because it's very reinforcing to be around people who agree with you, but it doesn't help you to grow. And certainly, I mean, my terror about growing old is that I will turn into an intolerant old fart. I mean, God, you know, you know, the young people. I'm, God, that would be so awful. And at the moment, that's trying my patience because I'm getting there. So you think right now that there's more of a sense that one has to be completely pure and agree with everyone's everyone's opinions on everything in order to politically collaborate with, with people? Is that, is no, that I implying? think I'm saying that's always been there. Uh-huh. I think that purity, that purity kind of idea is, is strong. And I think you can see that. You can certainly see it in religion. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the the notion of the heretic is not a new one. Mm-hmm. I think at the moment there are things that reinforce it. And I mean, obviously, I'm talking about social media. So there are people who there are ways of demanding compliance that there weren't before. Mm-hmm. So if you step out of line, as you well know, mm-hmm. you experience the pile on that you experienced was really only possible because of social media. Mm-hmm. It, you would have had to have been excuse me, this, me saying this, you would have had to be an enormous star <laughs> and the papers would have needed to take it on. As it happens, you're incredibly talented, but you're not, you know, you're not Tina Turner. Bless you, but, you know, and well tried. And, you know, I know, I know maybe, maybe on a Thursday night, maybe, maybe you are simply the best. I don't know. <laughs> but whatever. <laughs> But you know what I mean? What I'm sure. saying is, uh, but social media now actually enables that interaction, enables that traction by a relatively small group of people. It can create a lot of noise. So I don't think it's the purity, the notion of the heretic that's new. I think the notion, what's new is the mechanisms. Well, why don't you tell me about your book? And it's a perfect segue. Perfect segue. Um, a perfect bit of self-promotion. The power of um, difference. The power of difference. The book starts actually saying, why am I writing this book? Because a very good friend of mine, very sweetly read it for me. Somebody I went to university with. She's fabulous. She's, she, she was at university. We were at Sussex University in the 70s. So if I describe Frances as having... She's the only person I know who was the women's officer in the student unit in Sussex who also had Carmen Rollers, wore high heels and floaty dresses. I mean, she's just... She comes from a Quaker background. She's fiercely intelligent, very funny, and, and sort of counterintuitive in those days when, in order to be a feminist, obviously you had to wear clogs and dungarees. And... I love her. She's got a really powerful intelligence and she very sweetly read the book. 
And she said to me something really useful. She said, right, so the thing about this book is it's got intellectual content and it's got references and all that, but it is not an academic book and you don't want it to be treated as an academic book. So you need to situate it personally. So you need to, reach, you need to write chapter zero. It's a brilliant piece of advice because it made me think, why do I value difference? So I started off by thinking, well, I think I value difference partly because psychologically, growing up with my parents who fought passionately all the way through their marriage, for control really as much as anything else, but at the same time assuring me that they loved each other and they loved me. Now, notwithstanding, I found it quite difficult sometimes. I didn't like it. I found it was an adolescent. I found it really difficult. However... Because I didn't always believe that they did, but I think they did, although, you know, like all couples, maybe they should have got divorced. I mean, the famous Sybil Thorndike quote, she said, after being married to, I think it was Hugh Casson or someone for years and years and years, somebody said to her, you know, you ever thought of divorce over six? She said, divorce? Never said, murder? Never divorce. <laughs> so, you know, and my parents were like that. They were absolutely, you know, at each other's well. But they adored each other in a way, and they battled for control. So I think I've grown up with what I subsequently discovered at Sussex, of course, is what Marx has called dialectic, you know, which is obviously opposing views, creating a synthesis. So I really value difference. Psychologically, I value difference. I value argument. I've grown up as... That's part of my psychological pattern. I know that. Secondly, I went from, you know, army... I said my, my father was in the army, as I say, a serving officer. You know, we were classic... You know, my dad was in a Scottish regiment, kind of classic Anglo-Scot officer, blah, blah. So where I hung around as a kid, you know, people say I'm very middle class, which always annoys me because I'm upper <laughs> and middle class. And, you know, I mean, I'm posh. And so I went to Sussex and suddenly there, there I am. I'm meeting people who are completely different from me in social background and beaten viciously about the head by feminists intellectually saying, well, what kind of man are you? Mm-hmm. And it's amazing. That period of my life was such a gift because it suddenly put me in a position where I really had to think about who I was. But without, I mean, lots of other people, you know, why does I put on the cravat, whereas they drop the H's? You know what I mean? It was that sort of thing. So I was kind of wearing a cravat for the miners and they were all kind of wearing donkey jackets. So I kind of kept that bit and I sort of played that up a bit. Mm-hmm. But I was made wonderfully aware of 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 the excitement of difference. So that's another really important moment. And I do think the thing about being gay is not terribly interesting about being gay. It's just that, you know, you are. I mean, you know what I mean? It's just a thing, mm-hmm. you know? But it does put you in an interesting relationship to the rest of the world as you grow up. Because, and you see it with, with people who are gay whose parents are very liberal. They still have to go through that readjustment. And it's a psychological readjustment. You're readjusting your expectations of life and your, your assumptions about who you're going to be. You're having to reorganise them. And that gives you a certain distance from, from the society you grew up in. Mm. So I'm always, you know, I can play sort of posh white boy, but I also am 20% always slightly outside. So I play an in and out game. And I think being an outsider in that way, very slightly... And I'm not, this is not special pleading, it's just trying to explain what I felt. I think that gives you a real sense of difference and the enjoyment of difference. Mm-hmm. So you're a different kind of man. You have lots in common with men, but you're also different from them. Mm-hmm. So all those things mean that I enjoy difference in a way that 
You know, the human condition is that you can't understand somebody else. You can't walk in their shoes. You can't experience life as they experience life. What you can do is try, but only in the certain knowledge that you never will get there. Mm -hmm. And it's that journey is diversity. That's why we talk about diversity and inclusion, because we're different. We don't talk about it because we want to make everybody the same. Mm -hmm. we, so my view is we want to talk about it because we want to explore and experience and enjoy the difference. Okay, so... so what obviously strikes stands out and and you must this must be done intentionally i think is that we're talking about diversity equity and inclusion essentially without mentioning identity because it's all this is essentially sort of division of labor skill set everyone it is the best position for for their individual skills and this is in the face of the popular anti-individual Philosophy of the age, i.e., identitarianism. Your, your subject. Well, that's right. I mean, but, but well, well, it is. is are you are, are you arguing against that specifically? No, I'm arguing for, for for an understanding that gives us both an understanding of what might be the group experience, but being really accurate about what the group experience is, and then understanding what the individual ambition and aspiration and, and, and journey is. So, what we have to do with people? Which, when you say group, though, what do you? All oh, right. Well, uh, let me explain. So when. So classically, in the, in the diversity world, people talk about, you know, BAME, for instance. That's a phrase that people use, black and minority ethnic. Well, what you have to think, if you're going to use any category in life to describe and analyse something, you need to know what it's describing. Mm -hmm. Now, if you think of the people who would broadly be included in this category of BAME, are they united by culture, ethnicity, religion, family structure, geographical heritage... No. Political views? No. It's a vast group. One thing it can describe is the experience of not being white in Britain. Very seldom is BAME, by the way, used to include Jewish people. In Brighton, where I live, the council has explicitly excluded anti-Semitism, I understand, from their definition of racism. So that's been a big battle. Mm. So BAME really? describes one experience. And it ex the experience it describes is the experience of being not white, in a majority white country. So broadly speaking. Now, there is a set of common experiences. There are a set of common experiences. A grammatical error there. It's a waste of public school money, isn't it? <laughs> um, there are a set, of, a set of, of, of experiences that those people will share in common. And there's no doubt about it. You know, when you meet other gay people, there is a certain shared experience. So I once wrote a piece called The End of the Homosexual. Was it just a phase we were going through? And then I wrote a draft and then I had a bunch of gay friends to dinner and we all screamed and shouted. And, <laughs> and I thought, this is really weird. I've just written about how gay men have got nothing in common. Actually, I've suddenly just experienced that we've got something in common. So there is a common experience. And that is important. And so back to my belonging, back to the tribe quest and all that. So we, we experience, and it's important when you analyse, so you can take data of our company and you can say, where are women in, up and across this company? Who's being recruited? Who's being promoted? Who's being deployed? And you can work out where that is and you can see that very often in companies there's a ceiling that women hit. Is this, sorry, is this something your company is doing? Yes, by we, 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 we work with people on this data. My point is, responding to your point about identity, the point is that group of women have a common experience and you could look at the data and it can tell you what that group experience is. What it can't tell you is what the individual experience of that individual woman who's there in front of you with her ambitions, her life, her uh, desires and, and what she wants to do. 
Okay, so the, so you've got to. The, the point I is, you've got to mix see them. Why, what the, um, what the, unless it's a job where it's actually being a woman makes you more competent at the job, why why does it matter that, that it's a woman doing it? What, well, because if you look at... Surely you just want the most competent person to do the job. Well, you don't want Who the Who cares com- where they're from, what sex are, yes. what their sexuality is? So, is what I, so what I say is always, it's not who you are, it's what you bring through who you are. So as an individual, you bring a story. My story, I've sketched bits of it. So my story is about difference, about growing up posh, it's about entering... You know, a place where I discovered all these other social classes and I discovered feminism and blah, blah, blah. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that I bring as a gay man. I bring an outsider attitude as a gay man. I'm not saying... So individual women bring a particular story and women as a group bring a particular story. So, and this matters in two ways. It matters because if you look at the data, the data will tell you that women experience particular barriers to advancement in certain organisations. They just do. The data tells you that, and it's very, very clear. Okay. Now, why that happens then has to be really thought about in detail. So we have to understand what's going on there. But the other thing which is interesting is this. So about 18 months ago, the Harvard Business Review did a piece of research on risk. And they were looking at, the metric they used was to look at executive teams, and they said, right, growth strategies. The growth strategies are of two broad kinds, endogenous growth, which is, you know, growth through uh, research, innovation, investment, and then mergers and acquisition. The latter strategy is a much higher risk strategy than the endogenous strategy. What they then did was they looked at teams that had a balance of men and women and teams that were mostly men, and they looked at what strategies they favoured. And interestingly, they favoured the higher-risk strategy. And when they went down to look and try and work out why that was the case, they discovered something about women in companies, and it's this. As you go up a company as a bloke, if you try something and it doesn't work the culture of the companies tends to say, well, he had a go. If you're a woman and you try something that doesn't work, company cultures tend to say she can't do it. So as women progress up organisations, they start to calibrate risk differently because it has a higher jeopardy for them. So when you put men and women at a senior level in an organisation to discuss risk, you actually get a much richer approach to the discussion of, of risk. Similarly, we were once asked to help an an English literature department in a university diversify their recruitment of staff. And I looked at their data and I said to the person running the department, what problem are you trying to solve? There's a great department. It's all going gangbusters. And this person said something really interesting. She said, there's great English literature being written in the world at the moment by people who are not English. She said, so what I want to do, I want to reflect that aspect of the canon, the modern canon of English literature in the staff. It would look like ethnic diversity. It wasn't ethnic diversity she wanted. It was cultural and geographic diversity. She wanted to bring into the curriculum and the research an understanding of the great literature that's being written in the Caribbean, in India, in in Kenya, in Nigeria. Mm -hmm. So she was enriching. So the whole thing was about enriching the research and the curriculum. Mm -hmm. The whole point about the risk strategy is that there's an actual benefit to the organisation by having a richer and better debate. So my book is about what happens when you combine those differences, both individual, personal, style-wise, but also actually 
people do bring group differences which might reflect culture or lifestyle or class or their sex or whatever. Each of those things brings a story into the organisation and you have to see both of those things. So white people often say to me, and it's always white people who say this, they say, oh, well, I, I, don't, I don't see race, I just treat everybody as, you know, as an individual. And I always say the same thing to them. I say, if you don't see race, you're missing out on something. But if you only see race, you're also missing out on something. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it, uh, what I've, I've was been disturbing me a little bit about the recent DEI movement is that we're spending a lot in Britain. We're spending a lot of money. So the NHS spends forty million a year on diversity officers. Civil service apparently one million days a year are wasted on equality and diversity and training. One hundred twenty million pounds a year is spent on diversity training. The public sector employs ten thousand staff to deal with EDI and costs taxpayer £427 million a year. Is what you're talking about a way of doing that constructively? Or is it a separate... Because the the DEI stuff is very much about identity. It's about... It's not about practical stuff at all. It's about having quotas of different ethnic groups of sexualities, of having trans, and all of that represented. And that's the objective. Get those people in, and it's costing us... Hundreds of millions. So is, is, is this related? So yeah, it is. But what, what I'm, I'm a, a bit of a diversity dissident in the sense that what I'm trying to do is to help people have more effective conversations. Hence my division, for instance, into deficits and dividends. You need to know what you're doing. In an organisation, you need to know what you're doing and whether or not the combination of people you're recruiting, and I wouldn't say, see, one of the one of the flaws of this is I don't think it is the best person for the job. I think it's the best team for the job. Because most jobs are done in collaboration with other people. There's very few jobs, except perhaps a pure mathematician, that's just done on their own. We all we all work in teams. So the key thing is what's, to understand what the combination is. So back to my English literature department, that person knew what combination she wanted to enrich the curriculum and the research, and that's the core purpose of what she was trying to do. So she knew that. So a lot of times I think that what happens is that things are being done as they are done in lots and lots of places, not just around diversity. There are a series of processes. So now what's happened is... People say, well, we're going to do, we're going to do diversity. So what are we going to do? We're going to have reverse mentoring. We're going to do unconscious bias training. You know, there's a supermarket basket. You bang it in, go to the till, and that'll do. My approach is to say, our approach is to say, hang on a second. Before you do any of that, the first thing we need to understand is why are you doing this? So the reasons might be widespread. We work with an NHS trust, for instance that is the biggest employer in the region in which it sits. I won't say which it is, but there are two big motor manufacturers in the region. They're still the biggest employer. So part of their their desire was to be the most attractive employer in the region, really to manage to appeal across the demographics of the region. So that's an important thing for them to do, partly because they're a public service, but so they want to offer opportunities to the widest range of the public because they're a public service. They also want then to say, what's the best way of developing the best healthcare services for the region? Now, often people say, and I will give this example because I'm sure they won't mind, but we work with Yorkshire Ambulance, terrific. And one of the things that obviously an ambulance service or a health service like that might say is, we want to be representative of the population we serve. Great aspiration, but not possible. I said to them, okay, close your eyes. This is the board, Nick. I said, close your eyes. 
And think about Yorkshire. Let's think about Leeds and Bradford. Now I think about Knaresborough, Harrogate. Now I think about Scarborough. Now I think about York. You can't represent York, Yorkshire. I mean, it's just sort of not going to be possible. And in your call centre, the fact that, you know, the gay Muslim's not going to ring up when the gay Muslim happens to be on, you know, it's, that's not going to happen. What you can do is you can put together and learn from each other for instance, say in the people who design the services, a group that's got sufficient difference in it that alerts you to the difference outside in the world. And the thing about homogenous groups is they're less good at looking outside. Homogeneity of whatever kind, by the way, they're less good at looking out. And my previous example, people are less likely to disagree in homogenous groups than they are in groups that are more diverse. There's a lot of research uh, to show that actually diversity, self-conscious recognition of difference within a group helps you to alert yourself to the differences outside. Now, in an ambulance service, there is lots of, of data that tells you that different groups of people use ambulance services in different ways, older, younger Certain ethnic groups use ambulance and A&E more than they use GPs, etc., 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 women and men. So there are lots of differences out there about how you make an ambulance service that really does save people's lives in the most effective way. So diversity plays a role in that, but it only plays a role in that if you're really, really rigorous about that discussion in the way that I've tried to lay it out. That, so that seems to me perfectly reasonable because they're going to be a better service if they understand the community they're involved in but let's say let's take a football team the objective is to win you don't need every member of your football team to represent every corner let's say it's Leeds United to ever represent every corner of Leeds well there's certainly it's international but, but it's just about winning this this concept is specific to different organizations absolutely and, and Look, so it's not relevant to well it, it's any, relevant any, sometimes any industry any business no it, that's absolutely right but equally what you don't want is a football team that doesn't have access to talent because it won't employ black players or it, uh, actually at the moment it won't, it won't employ gay footballers. There might be tons of gay footballers out there who just will not play football. And that's not a route that gay men will ever take into football, in men's football, because at the moment it's too damn scary. If you go out there as a gay footballer, you would be barracked from the, the whatever. We won't be, actually, Brighton is quite funny. I'm, eventually you think, oh, for God's sake, the Albion, come on. So you've got yeah, two, but, the, 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 but you've got two crescents here, Winston. And I think you're confusing the two crescents. I go back to the dividend and the deficit. Mm -hmm. There is perfectly good. There are perfectly good reasons to solve these deficits. If people are having blocks put in the way of their talent, we should be removing them. If, and that often is a result of the group they belong to. We know data tell us that women suffer in terms of their ambitions. We know that. The data is very clear. We know that certain people experience, back people experience racism at work. The day, so we've got to get to the root of this and open up people's roots to their ambition and stop the blocks to talent. I fully support stopping the blocks, but the response wouldn't then be that every premiership football team has to have at least one gay football no. player on the team. Have I which, said that? No, but that no. is what the, oh. that is the, would be equivalent analogy for the Well, that is part DEI of the... Well, it's one of the I, problems. Ideology it's one of the problems is that the mistake has been to have a kind of a t 
people call it the tick box. There's a sort of tick box compliance. And the easy way of doing that is counting stuff. And the easy way to count is go, well, okay, well, we look at the census and then everybody has to be representative. I don't take that view. I say that in different places, you need a different kind of combination of difference. Mm-hmm. And you also need to understand whether the deficits that you're experiencing in your sector or your company are particularly germane to the experience to the functioning of the company or what you're trying to do. Yeah. So it, you, you've got to do both. That's my point. Mm. And you're right. In the diversity orthodoxy, often people are not. And that's why they employ us, because we do. We have, a, I think, a more nuanced mm. view of it. And the other thing you, it's important to do is that often these deficits and things arise not because somebody's being racist or sexist or homophobic. They arise for other reasons, actually. They almost, often they happen accidentally. That doesn't mean to say they're any less awful for the person experiencing them. Mm. But if you're going to tackle them, you've got to understand what the mechanism that's working. Mm -hmm. So can I take you back to Stonewall? Well, you're asking me, never ask a question, the answer to which you don't want. (laughs) If you want to take me back to Stonewall, you you be the dominatrix here, for God's sake. (laughs) Stonewall, can you tell me... What has happened to Stonewall? I know you're not a part of the LGBA now, but it seems from my research that you're a supporter. I might be wrong. Do correct me if I'm wrong. But what happened to Stonewall where it seems to have, there's been a great split where a lot of people have left it, a lot of people from the gay rights movement who supported Stonewall for many years and now turned against it. What's your intel, your insight? So... Something extraordinary happened between 1989 and 2014, which was that we, we and all the people brilliantly who then took over from the people who started it, we won. I mean, with a few exceptions, Northern Ireland was a bit slow with the, with the civil partnership, the marriage thing, a bit of pensions that needed to be sorted Basically, job done. You, and we got our equality woggle. That's what I would say. We got our equality woggle. Job done. You know, we got the badge. What's a woggle? It's a woggle. You are. You've got no idea. Here you were on the spectator. It was that thing you put on the... You had a scarf around your neck and you had a woggle. A woggle. Yeah, and then like you had a badges for cooking and, and things. Anyway, so back to Stonewall. <laughs> so what happened? 2014, legislative equality. Still issues social equality, not saying that people didn't experience violence or whatever or harassment or unpleasantness, but I often say that even if it was an everyday event, it certainly was no longer an all-day event. So we extraordinary success. And at that point, the organisation had a strategic pivot, as they call it, in business. My own view, and when they recruited a new chief executive, some... Three people I know applied for the job and they all rang me and said, what do you think Stonewall should do next? And I said, well, I don't think that really matters, but I'm interested to know what you think Stonewall should do next. And all three of them quite independently said the same thing. They said, what Stonewall should do now is devolve down to cities and towns and the rural areas and build the same alliances locally as they were built nationally. So that when, for instance, that row set up in the Birmingham schools a few years ago, which I write about in the book. Did I say I'd written a book? It's called The Power of Difference. Frightfully cheap. It's jolly good. Value for money. Um, it, uh, so in the Birmingham schools, uh, there, were, there was a, 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 a set of, a, you know, in, in sort of personal social relationship class or whatever it's called. You know, they were teaching them. And then there was a bunch of Muslim parents who were unhappy when about is this. this. Uh, it was about three or four years ago, four yeah. years ago, something like that. 
And there was a clash. It was very interesting, actually, because all the Muslim parent posters said things like, you know, we are, it was about parental control over the content of the stuff, much more than actually whether or not it was gay. But anyway, the point about it was that sort of dispute, Stonewall wasn't on the ground in Birmingham in the way that it would have on a national level. So what we were saying was at that 2014 moment, gay marriage, strategic pivot, what people were saying, a lot of good people were saying was devolve. Get down now into the regions and the countryside and so on and so forth and really build, affect people's lives. So make sure that what we've established at equality at a national level is really getting that sort of traction for people in their everyday lives locally. They decided not to do that. They just pivoted and they and they pivoted towards a national campaign. I differ from Matthew Paris on this. Matthew argues, and he was one of the other co-founders, he argues that, um, not one of the original six, but one of the next lot, and he argues that Stonewall shouldn't got involved in the trans issue at all. My argument has always been that actually what Stonewall should have done was support those campaigns and said, as we always had done, we did it with the immigration group, we did it with the armed forces group, we did it with the parents group in Stonewall, we always said, We'll give you resources, we'll give you support, get started, but crucially, find your own voice. And then off you go, you know, out of the nest, fly. Because you saw them as as different? No, because actually it's important that people who are involved in that issue find their voice and they find their way of campaigning and they own it. That's what's important about it. So you didn't see that issue as a continuation of of what Stonewall had already done? Well, I mean, in in the army, what do you mean, the parents and all... You mean the immigration stuff and the parents stuff and the army yeah. stuff? Yeah, no, they were just, they were groups who had a common interest and they particularly wanted to major on that single campaign. And we were, we were doing a much, we were doing a general campaign. So the idea was you, 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 you help them to find their voice and then you back them as the general and they are the specific. So mm-hmm. it's just that, it's just that if people own a campaign, it's really important that sure. they're in control of it, you know? Mm-hmm. So I said always when people asked, well, I think, you know, if you want a campaign on trans rights or whatever, then they should take that campaign and they should support Stonewall should support it and then it should float off and it should find its own voice unfortunately what happened was not that what happened was I don't particularly have a, have a, have a disagreement if Stonewall wants to campaign on trans rights it seems to me what Stonewall wants to campaign on is what Stonewall wants to campaign on if it can get public support for what it campaigns on well it should go off and do that fine I have a I have an issue with the way in which it chose to campaign because what we had always done, as I explained before, was built these very broad alliances with people. And crucially, around homosexuality and lesbians and gays, the crucial thing is actually people have a view <laughs> about homosexuality. And what you're not going to do is change their view. What you will do is change the circumstances in which lesbians and gays can live. So the crucial thing is to make a material difference to the lives of the people you're campaigning for. And the way you do that is to build these broad alliances around bigger principles. So if what you're going to do, and I don't know what the right strategy would have been, but if you're going to build a strategy around trans rights, you have to find a way of engaging with some of the difficulties that it poses and that self-ID identity poses, which is the idea that you, know, you, you get to be the opposite sex or whatever. And we know that this raises significant issues. Whatever you think about the various views on it, it is a simple fact that in sport and in women's spaces and a variety of other, there are issues because there are differences of views and opinions about the best way forward. So that what Stonewall should and could do is to host that discussion. They should try and develop a platform which has got the broadest support. Unfortunately, what they did was they decided to take this idea 
which is equal, uh, what acceptance without exception. Unfortunately, what that means is you end up with a form of purity politics. You end up saying that if you do not agree with us on this issue, then you are now the heretic. Mm. So myself and others became the wrong kinds of gay because I think that sex actually matters. I think that sex is immutable. That doesn't mean to say that I'm transphobic or something. It means to say that I think that trans people have an extraordinary story to tell, but it's a different story to tell. A trans woman has a different story to tell than a, than a woman. And, you know, that's just to me the richness. And that's why I wrote a book called The Power of Difference rather than The Power of Sameness. So my difficulty with Stonewall is that it isn't building those broad alliances that it needs to do. It's trying to force through a set of legislative alternatives which frankly don't have the support of the broad public. Whereas actually what we drove through did have the support of the broad public. So that's my problem with it. And that's what I've said in public. And I think it's a shame because we built a lot of credibility. I remember the first time, the person who really did this was a woman called Angela Mason, who was the chief exec of Stonewall. She was astonishing in building these alliances. I mean, she's a really remarkable politician, if you like. She she just has the ability to understand and listen and put together those different groups. I mean, I have unbounded admiration for for, for Angela. Um, and what they didn't do was that. They've, they've, they've pushed it through, and you, and you saw it recently in Scotland. If you push through a bad piece of legislation which has too many holes in it and has, is too ambiguous, you end up losing the support of the people. Is the problem then for Stonewall, if they're taking this on, is that it's actually an issue that you can't have those broad conversations because the issue, say, of, uh, uh, we're talking about impingement on women's spaces, for example. How do you, how do you solve that issue? I mean, you could have separate bathrooms, but if, if what trans people, what they actually want is uh, to be in, the, in yeah. a woman's bathroom, that's an, un, that's an un, Yes. Oh, look, uh, when I say broad alliance, I don't mean total agreement. I mean a broad alliance. There are going to be people who end up disagreeing with certain aspects of the policy that you, that you get. But it seems to me that if you think about these, this, the, the issue in terms of three kind of categories, if you think about biology, you think about social interaction, you think about law and policy, I think biology is pretty settled. I mean, I don't think there's any credible scientific source that says, you know, sex is on a spectrum and so on and so forth. And intersex people kind of get thrown under this bus the whole time. But the, the issue for intersex people is that actually they have surgical procedures practiced on them without their choice. And what they're saying is actually, could, could we leave that to later in life when we can make a choice? You know, that seems to me a different kind of issue. So I think biology is, 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 I mean, I don't like the phrase science is settled because that's the whole point about science, you know. But I think we're pretty clear that we've had thousands of years of a binary species. And, and, and I think that's probably sort of where we reliably can, uh, uh, we can rely on. Well, many people would think that's a bigoted opinion. But I, but let's, okay, but I think but, we, yeah. I, I would say, I, I, don't, I would say we would rely I on that. And I think most people would be, would be, you know, pretty clear about that. Most people would recognise that, you know, they were born of a woman. So the second thing I think then is to say, well, what are our social interactions? I have a friend called Jackie Gavin, who is a trans activist and a, and a, a trans woman. Uh, she transitioned when she was in her twenties, I think. Um, and Jackie's remarkable. Um, she tells the story. So I did a panel with her once and I put this in the book too, which was that she told the story. She was called Scott before she was Jackie. 
And somebody asked a question after she told the story, and they said, um, I find this all really confusing, uh, you know, misgendering, dead name. I don't know what to do. I'm fine, really confused. And Jackie was fantastic. She said to this woman, she said, look, the first thing to do, she said, just ask. You know, be open and ask and be curious. She said, I, and then she said this extraordinary thing. She said, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Scott's bravery. He's part of me and I carry him everywhere I go. And the audience in front of her, the about 60 people, whatever, just went, oh my God. Because what she'd said to them was something they could absolutely embrace. It was her real, it was her real story. And, and it gave everybody a way in. And people afterwards could not stop talking to her. It was absolutely beautiful. So I feel that socially... I mean, I refer to Jackie as she. Now, there are a number of feminists and women who will not do that. I feel perfectly comfortable to do that. I also think sometimes that it's just because I'm of a generation of gay men that we used to play around with gender like that. You know, somebody would have, you know, one of your friends would have a, a fit and you go, oh, she's throwing her toys out of the pram. Oh, look at her, <laughs> you know, etc. So we're kind of used to it, but I'm fine with that. And I refer to Jackie, uh, several trans friends I would easily refer to as she. I don't have a problem with that. That's my social interaction. I find it more challenging when it's people who haven't actually transitioned. And I find it more challenging when it's people who are very obviously male. I mean, there's somebody who's on the trans advisory group at Stonewall who published a video and he sat there with a beard in a dress saying that he's a lesbian and I say to myself well I, I don't really think that's I don't think that works really I'm afraid mm -hmm. I think that we're going to have to find a different way of of referring to that so I understand that there's debate and discussion and I'm open to that discussion and I want to understand it and I want to work our way through it but that's a social thing and I think we should be grown up enough all of us and there will be people who will scream at you for not doing it. Well, that's just the state of the world. But actually, let's see if we can agree some conventions, some manners, you know. And then you get to law and policy. And I think it's absolutely crucial that law is, is based, that we understand in law that sex does matter in certain circumstances. That would be my starting point. And I think there's a very broad range of people who agree with that. Mm -hmm. The question then comes, what are the implications of that? And if you look at sport, well, I do think that it's absolutely reasonable. If you're a trans person, you want to be in sport. Well, you, you know, that's great. Let's encourage that. But actually, I think it's also fair to say that if, you if it's a sport that has a muscular advantage through puberty, then I think we have to think about what category you then play in. If you look at equestrian sports, for instance, um, men and women are not divided. If you think of show jumping and horse racing, they're not divided. They they race in the same category because actually there isn't seen to be a muscular there isn't a muscular advantage. The the so the, something happened in music this year, which brings a problem to that is that they got rid at the Brit Awards they got rid yeah. of uh, male and female categories, and then what happened is that all for the best artist whatever the, all of the nominees were men. <laughs> so obviously when it comes to creation, there's no advantage that a male or have as a over well a it's interesting isn't but it what what led to that you see and one of the things i would ask is to say what led to making those decisions who made those decisions and what what did they have in their mind when they were making those decisions about what was the best artist of that year another example similar to that which is if you look at the FTSE 100 and i i'm the first person to do this counting and i did it ages ago um there are more, if, if you look at the top 300 jobs, the FTSE 100, there are more white men called John, David and Andrew there are in those top 300 jobs than there are 
women or people who are not white. And I did this by literally looking at, and I mean, I literally, literally, I don't mean a teenage, literally. I mean, I actually did it. I looked at all the pictures. And so I might have made a mistake. I accept that, but the margin is so huge. And actually, there's a bit of an improvement, which is very exciting. You have to add the Michaels now to make it work. So hurrah for progress. <laughs> but the question is, the question is, why is that happening? Now, you can point your finger at it and say, well, you're racist and sexist. What actually is happening, uh, if you research into it, is it's what the people making those appointments value in the candidates that they're appointing. And what they're valuing is what they've already got. In other words, they see in the potential candidates themselves and the skills they bring. So typically, I've been on a board before. I've been an executive at a FTSE company, etc. I would argue, and I have argued successfully with a number of boards, actually what you really will give you a better board is looking at what you've already got and then thinking, what can I add that's different to give me that different discussion? So back to all my points about the homogenous discussion, your point about if everybody's thinking the same, nobody's thinking. What you do in a really good board and really good governance and really good risk assessment is you disrupt a bit. So you have disruptors and that's what creates the best board. So what I'm saying is the mechanism that creates that imbalance at the top of the FTSE is not out-group hostility. It's not saying we don't have women, we're not having black people. It's to do with what people value and the historical pipeline. And yes, there is a bit of saying, oh, women can't do this. Oh, show me the black executives. Well, I so would, there is a bit I of I would deny that there's, some, there's very likely some of that's going on. But those FTSE companies, it's all about profit. They have to make Yeah, profit. but I'm so but they're you keep gonna, on going back to this. There's no counterfactual. It is all about profit, but how many f- companies crash and burn because they had HMV crashed and burned because they didn't realise the internet was on the way. They didn't have disruptors in their board. They were absolutely going down the tram lines. They thought they were selling CDs. They weren't. They were selling content. And they failed to understand that. So all I'm saying is, if you want to make money, have disruption, have difference. But that comes from diversity of opinion. It comes from all sorts of diversity. And that's what I'm saying to you. If you look at Catherine Phillips's research and you look at groups that are mixed in all sorts of ways, if they see and value the difference, and that can be ethnic and it can be a mix of sexes, it can be a mix of all sorts of other things, mm-hmm. that cognitive diversity is partly made up by people's identity. I think I accept that, that of course. Well, that's- I'm honoured. I'm honoured. <laughs> oh, I should go home happy now. Oh, my God. Win- okay. Winston thinks yeah. I'm right. That's fantastic. <laughs> That's fantastic. Oh, well done, me. I shall, well, put, I actually, shall put the big job done. I'll you're actually big... doing something about it. And, and uh, your version of uh, diversity and, and is one I, I do support. And I do think, uh, unlike the, a lot of the DEI um, programs we're seeing, which worry me, particularly as a severe waste of money, um, yours is one that doesn't seem to be falling into the same trapping. So that's very exciting. And, and diversity by design. Uh, to, to, if you're a CEO <laughs> and you want a new way through, come and talk to Fanny. <laughs> Great. Well, uh, on that note, Simon Fanshawe, thank you so much for It's been a real me. pleasure. Thank yeah. you. Your book, uh, uh, The Power of Difference, you can, where can we get it? Amazon? Oh, absolutely everywhere. I think, it's, I, think, I think it might be approximately £16.42. Approximately. Today, I think approximately today. <laughs> Great. And more comedy? 
yes, I'm going to do this show. I've turned the book into a show, really. And I think it's good. So I want it to be interactive with the audience. And so I, I, when I run the Perrier, it was, I basically I asked the audience questions and, and improvised a comedy. I mean, I'd written some stuff before. I'm not totally lazy, but I'd written some stuff before and then I improvised with the audience. So I want to do the same, really, about current issues. So I think it's going to be called Fanny's LGBTQ&A. <laughs> You've got the names. <laughs> That's great. Simon Fanshawe, thank you so much for speaking with me. Pleasure. <laughs>